Chapter Twenty One, Part Three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Twenty One, Persecution of Heresy, State of the Church, Part Four. Such was the rise and progress, and such were the natural revolutions of such theological debates, and such were the natural revolutions of those theological disputes which disturbed the peace of Christianity under the reigns of Constantine and of his sons. But as those princes presumed to extend their despotism over the faith, as well as over the lives and fortunes of their subjects, the weight of their suffrage sometimes inclined the ecclesiastical balance, and the prerogatives of the King of Heaven were settled, or changed, or modified in the cabinet of an earthly monarch. The unhappy spirit of discord which pervaded the provinces of the East interrupted the triumph of Constantine, but the emperor continued for some time to view, with cool and careless indifference, the object of the dispute. As he was yet ignorant of the difficulty of appeasing the quarrels of theologians, he addressed to the contending parties, to Alexander and to Arius, a moderating epistle which may be ascribed with far greater reason to the untutored sense of a soldier and statesman than to the dictates of any of his episcopal counsellors. He attributes the origin of the whole controversy to a trifling and subtle question, concerning an incomprehensible point of law, which was foolishly asked by the bishop, and imprudently resolved by the presbyter. He laments that the Christian people, who had the same God, the same religion, and the same worship, should be divided by such inconsiderable distinctions, and he seriously recommends to the clergy of Alexandria the example of the Greek philosophers, who could maintain their arguments without losing their temper, and assert their freedom without violating their friendship. The indifference and contempt of the sovereign would have been, perhaps, the most effectual method of silencing the dispute, if the popular current had been less rapid and impetuous, and if Constantine himself, in the midst of faction and fanaticism, could have preserved the calm possession of his own mind. But his ecclesiastical ministers soon contrived to seduce the impartiality of the magistrate, and to awaken the zeal of the proselyte. He was provoked by the insults which had been offered to his statues. He was alarmed by the real as well as the imaginary magnitude of the spreading mischief, and he extinguished the hope of peace and toleration from the moment that he assembled three hundred bishops within the walls of the same palace. The presence of the monarch swelled the importance of the debate. His attention multiplied the arguments, and he exposed his person with a patient intrepidity which animated the valor of the combatants. Notwithstanding the applause which had been bestowed on the eloquence and sagacity of Constantine, a Roman general, whose religion might still be a subject of doubt, and whose mind had not been enlightened either by study or by inspiration, was indifferently qualified to discuss, in the Greek language, a metaphysical question, or an article of faith. But the credit of his favorite Osius, who appears to have presided in the council of Nicaea, might dispose the emperor in favor of the orthodox party and a well-timed insinuation that the same Eusebius of Nicomedia, who now protected the heretic, had lately assisted the tyrant, might exasperate him against their adversaries. The Nicene Creed was ratified by Constantine, and his firm declaration that those who resisted the divine judgment of the Synod must prepare themselves for immediate exile, annihilated the murmurs of a feeble opposition, which, from seventeen, was almost instantly reduced to two protesting bishops. Eusebius of Caesarea yielded a reluctant and ambiguous consent to the Homoousion, and the wavering conduct of the Nicomedian Eusebius served only to delay about three months his disgrace and exile. 
the impious Arius was banished into one of the remote provinces of Illyricum. His person and disciples were branded by law with the odious name of Porphyrians. His writings were condemned to the flames, and a capital punishment was denounced against those in whose possession they should be found. The emperor had now imbibed the spirit of controversy, and the angry, sarcastic style of his edicts was designed to inspire his subjects with the hatred which he had conceived against the enemies of Christ. But, as if the conduct of the emperor had been guided by passion instead of principle, three years from the council of Nicaea were scarcely elapsed before he discovered some symptoms of mercy, and even of indulgence, towards the prescribed sect, which was secretly protected by his favorite sister. The exiles were recalled, and Eusebius, who gradually resumed his influence over the mind of Constantine, was restored to the episcopal throne from which he had been ignominiously degraded. Arius himself was treated by the whole court with the respect which would have been due to an innocent and oppressed man. His faith was approved by the Synod of Jerusalem, and the emperor seemed impatient to repair his injustice by issuing an absolute command that he should be solemnly admitted to communion in the cathedral of Constantinople. On the same day which had been fixed for the triumph of Arius, he expired, and the strange and horrid circumstances of his death might excite a suspicion that the orthodox states had contributed more efficaciously than by their prayers to deliver the church from the most formidable of her enemies. The three principal leaders of the Catholics, Athanasius of Alexandria, Eustathius of Antioch, and Paul of Constantinople, were deposed on various accusations by the sentence of numerous councils, and were afterwards banished into distant provinces by the first of the Christian emperors who, in the last moments of his life, received the rites of baptism from the Arian bishop of Nicomedia. The ecclesiastical government of Constantine cannot be justified from the reproach of levity and weakness. But the credulous monarch, unskilled in the stratagems of theological warfare, might be deceived by the modest and specious professions of the heretics, whose sentiments he never perfectly understood. And while he protected Arius, and persecuted Athanasius, he still considered the council of Nicaea as the bulwark of the Christian faith, and the peculiar glory of his own reign. The sons of Constantine must have been admitted from their childhood into the rank of catechumens, but they imitated, in the delay of their baptism, the example of their father. Like him, they presumed to pronounce their judgment on mysteries into which they have never been regularly initiated and the fate of the Trinitarian controversy depended, in great measure, on the sentiments of Constantius, who inherited the provinces of the East and acquired the possession of the whole empire. The Arian presbyter, or bishop, who had secreted for his use the testament of the deceased emperor, improved the fortunate occasion which had introduced him to the familiarity of a prince, whose public counsels were always swayed by his domestic favorites. The eunuchs and slaves diffused the spiritual poison through the palace, and the dangerous infection was communicated by the female attendants to the guards, and by the empress to her unsuspicious husband. The partiality which Constantius always expressed toward the Eusebian faction was insensibly fortified by the dexterous management of their leaders, and his victory over the tyrant Magnentius increased his inclination as well as ability to employ the arms of power in the cause of Arianism. While the two armies were engaged in the plains of Mursa, and the fate of the two rivals depended on the chance of war, the son of Constantine passed the anxious moments in a church of the martyrs under the walls of the city. His spiritual comforter, Valens, the Arian bishop of the diocese, employed the most artful precautions to obtain such early intelligence as might secure either his favor or his escape. A secret chain of swift and trusty messengers informed him of the vicissitudes of the battle, and while the courtiers stood trembling around their affrighted master, Valens assured him that the Gallic legions gave way, 
and insinuated, with some presence of mind, that the glorious event had been revealed to him by an angel. The grateful emperor ascribed his success to the merits and intercession of the bishop of Mursa, whose faith had deserved the public and miraculous approbation of heaven. The Arians, who considered as their own the victory of Constantius, preferred his glory to that of his father. Cyril, bishop of Jerusalem, immediately composed the description of a celestial cross, encircled with a splendid rainbow, which during the festival of Pentecost, at about the third hour of the day, had appeared over the Mount of Olives to the edification of the devout pilgrims, and the people of the holy city. The size of the meteor was gradually magnified, and the Arian historian has ventured to affirm that it was conspicuous to the two armies in the plains of Panania, and that the tyrant, who is purposely represented as an idolater, fled before the auspicious sign of orthodox Christianity. The sentiments of a judicious stranger, who has impartially considered the progress of civil or ecclesiastical discord, are always entitled to our notice, and a short passage of Ammianus, who served in the armies and studied the character of Constantius, is perhaps of more value than many pages of theological invectives. The Christian religion, which in itself, said the moderate historian, is plain and simple, he confounded by the dotage of superstition. Instead of reconciling the parties by the weight of his authority, he cherished and promulgated by verbal disputes the differences which his vain curiosity had excited. The highways were covered with troops of bishops, galloping from every side to the assemblies, which they call synods, and while they labored to reduce the whole sect to their own particular opinions, the public establishment of the posts was almost ruined by their hasty and repeated journeys. Our more intimate knowledge of the ecclesiastical transactions of the reign of Constantius would furnish an ample commentary on this remarkable passage, which justifies the rational apprehensions of Athanasius, that the restless activity of the clergy, who wandered round the empire in search of the true faith, would excite the contempt and laughter of the unbelieving world. As soon as the emperor was relieved from the terrors of the civil war, he devoted the leisure of his winter quarters at Arles, Milan, Sirmium, and Constantinople to the amusement or toils of controversy. The sword of the magistrate, and even of the tyrant, was unsheathed, to enforce the reasons of the theologian, and as he opposed the orthodox faith of Nicaea, it is readily confessed that his incapacity and ignorance were equal to his presumption. The eunuchs, the women, and the bishops, who governed the vain and feeble mind of the emperor, had inspired him with an insuperable dislike to the homoseon, but his timid conscience was alarmed by the impiety of Aetius. The guilt of that atheist was aggravated by the suspicious favor of the unfortunate Gallus, and even the death of the imperial ministers who had been massacred at Antioch were imputed to the suggestions of that dangerous sophist. The mind of Constantius, which could neither be moderated by reason nor fixed by faith, was blindly impelled to either side of the dark and empty abyss, by his horror of the opposite extreme. He alternately embraced and condemned the sentiments. He successively banished and recalled the leaders of the Arian and semi-Arian factions. During the season of public business or festivity, he employed whole days and even nights in selecting the words and weighing the syllables which composed his fluctuating creeds the subject of his meditations still pursued and occupied his slumbers. The incoherent dreams of the emperor were received as celestial visions, and he accepted with complacency the lofty title of Bishop of Bishops, from those ecclesiastics who forgot the interest of their order for the gratification of their passions. 
The design of establishing a uniformity of doctrine, which had engaged him to convene so many synods in Gaul, Italy, Illyricum, and Asia, was repeatedly baffled by his own levity, by the division of the Arians, and by the resistance of the Catholics. And he resolved, as the last and decisive effort, imperiously to dictate the decrees of a general council. The destructive earthquake of Nicomedia, the difficulty of finding a convenient place, and perhaps some secret motives of policy, produced an alteration in the summons. The bishops of the east were directed to meet at Seleucia in Isauria, while those of the west held their deliberations at Rimini, on the coast of the Hadriatic, and instead of two or three deputies from each province, the whole episcopal body was ordered to march. The eastern council, after consuming four days in fierce and unavailing debate, separated without any definitive conclusion. The council of the west was protracted till the seventh month. Taurus, the praetorian prefect, was instructed not to dismiss the prelates till they should all be united in the same opinion, and his efforts were supported by the power of banishing fifteen of the most refractory, and a promise of the consulship if he achieved so difficult an adventure. His prayers and threats, the authority of the sovereign, the sophistry of Valens and Ursacius, the distress of cold and hunger, and the tedious melancholy of a hopeless exile, at length extorted the reluctant consent of the bishops of Rimini. The deputies of the East and of the West attended the Emperor in the palace of Constantinople, and he enjoyed the satisfaction of imposing on the world a profession of faith which established the likeness, without expressing the consubstantiality, of the Son of God. But the triumph of Arianism had been preceded by the removal of the Orthodox clergy, whom it was impossible either to intimidate or to corrupt, and the reign of Constantius was disgraced by the unjust and ineffectual persecution of the great Athanasius. We have seldom an opportunity of observing, either in active or speculative life, what effect may be produced, or what obstacles may be surmounted, by the force of a single mind, when it is inflexibly applied to the pursuit of a single object. The immortal name of Athanasius will never be separated from the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, to whose defense he consecrated every moment and every faculty of his being. Educated in the family of Alexander, he had vigorously opposed the early progress of the Arian heresy. He exercised the important functions of secretary under the aged prelate, and the fathers of the Nicene Council beheld with surprise and respect the rising virtues of the young deacon. In a time of public danger, the dull claims of age and rank are sometimes superseded, and within five months after his return from Nicaea, the deacon Athanasius was seated on the archiepiscopal throne of Egypt. He filled that eminent station above forty-six years, and his long administration was spent in a perpetual combat against the powers of Arianism. Five times was Athanasius expelled from his throne. Twenty years he passed as an exile or fugitive, and almost every province of the Roman Empire was successively witness to his merit, and his sufferings in the cause of the Homoousion, which he considered as the sole pleasure in business, as the duty, and as the glory of his life. Amidst the storms of persecution, the Archbishop of Alexandria was patient of labor, jealous of fame, careless of safety, and although his mind was tainted by the contagion of fanaticism, Athanasius displayed a superiority of character and abilities which would have qualified him far better than the degenerate sons of Constantine for the government of a great monarchy. His learning was much less profound and extensive than that of Eusebius of Caesarea, and his rude eloquence could not be compared with the polished oratory of Gregory of Basil. But whenever the primate of Egypt was called upon to justify his sentiments or his conduct, his unpremeditated style, either of speaking or writing, was clear, forcible, and persuasive. He has always been revered in the Orthodox school as one of the most accurate masters of Christian theology.
and he was supposed to possess two profane sciences less adapted to the episcopal character, the knowledge of jurisprudence and that of divination. Some fortunate conjectures of future events, which impartial reasoners might ascribe to the experience and judgment of Athanasius, were attributed by his friends to heavenly inspiration, and imputed by his enemies to infernal magic. But, as Athanasius was continually engaged with the prejudices and passions of every order of men, from the monk to the emperor, the knowledge of human nature was his first and most important science. He preserved a distinct and unbroken view of a scene which was incessantly shifting, and never failed to improve those decisive moments which are irrecoverably passed before they are perceived by a common eye. The Archbishop of Alexandria was capable of distinguishing how far he might boldly command, and where he must dexterously insinuate, how long he might contend with power, and when he must withdraw from persecution. And while he directed the thunders of the church against heresy and rebellion, he could assume, in the bosom of his own party, the flexible and indulgent temper of a prudent leader. The election of Athanasius had not escaped the reproach of irregularity and precipitation, but the propriety of his behavior conciliated the affections both of the clergy and of the people. The Alexandrians were impatient to rise in arms for the defense of an eloquent and liberal pastor. In his distress he always derived support, or at least consolation, from the faithful attachment of his parochial clergy, and the hundred bishops of Egypt adhered with unshaken zeal to the cause of Athanasius. In the modest equipage which pride and policy would effect, he frequently performed the episcopal visitation of his provinces, from the mouth of the Nile to the confines of Ethiopia, familiarly conversing with the meanest of the populace, and humbly saluting the saints and hermits of the desert. Nor was it only in ecclesiastical assemblies, among men whose education and manners were similar to his own, that Athanasius displayed the ascendancy of his genius. He appeared with easy and respectful firmness in the courts of the princes, and in the various turns of his prosperous and adverse fortune he never lost the confidence of his friends or the esteem of his enemies. In his youth the primate of Egypt resisted the great Constantine, who had repeatedly signified his will that Arius should be restored to the Catholic communion. The emperor respected and might forgive this inflexible resolution, and the faction who considered Athanasius as their most formidable enemy was constrained to dissemble their hatred, and silently to prepare an indirect and distant assault. They scattered rumors and suspicions, represented the archbishop as a proud and oppressive tyrant, and boldly accused him of violating the treaty which had been ratified in the Nicene Council with the schismatic followers of Miletius. Athanasius had openly disapproved that ignominious peace, and the emperor was disposed to believe that he had abused his ecclesiastical and civil power to prosecute these odious sectaries, that he had sacrilegiously broken a chalice in one of their churches of Mariotis, that he had whipped or imprisoned six of their bishops, and that Arsenius, a seventh bishop of the same party, had been murdered, or at least mutilated, by the cruel hand of the primate. These charges, which affected his honor and his life, were referred by Constantine to his brother, Dalmatius the Censor, who resided at Antioch. The synods of Caesarea and of Tyre were successively convened, and the bishops of the East were instructed to judge the cause of Athanasius, before they proceeded to consecrate the new church of the resurrection at Jerusalem. The primate might be conscious of his innocence, but he was sensible that the same implacable spirit which had dictated the accusation would direct the proceedings, and pronounce the sentence. He prudently declined the tribunal of his enemies, despised the summons of the synod of Caesarea, and after a long and artful delay, submitted to the peremptory commands of the emperor, who threatened to punish his criminal disobedience if he refused to appear in the council of Tyre. Before Athanasius, at the head of fifty Egyptian prelates, sailed from Alexandria, 
he had wisely secured the alliance of the Miletians, and Arsenius himself, his imaginary victim and his secret friend, was privately concealed by his train. The synod of Tyre was conducted by Eusebius of Caesarea, with more passion and less art than his learning and experience might promise. His numerous faction repeated the names of homicide and tyrant, and their clamors were encouraged by the seeming patience of Athanasius, who expected the decisive moment to produce Arsenius alive and unhurt in the midst of the assembly. The nature of the other charges did not admit of such clear and satisfactory replies, yet the archbishop was able to prove that, in the village where he was accused of breaking a consecrated chalice, neither church nor altar nor chalice could really exist. The Arians, who had secretly determined the guilt and condemnation of their enemy, attempted, however, to disguise their injustice by the imitation of judicial forms. The Synod appointed an Episcopal commission of six delegates to collect evidence on the spot, and this measure, which was vigorously opposed by Egyptian bishops, opened new scenes of violence and perjury. After the return of the deputies from Alexandria, the majority of the council pronounced the final sentence of degradation and exile against the primate of Egypt. The decree, expressed in the fiercest language of malice and revenge, was communicated to the emperor and the Catholic Church, and the bishops immediately resumed a mild and devout aspect, such as became their holy pilgrimage to the sepulchre of Christ. End of chapter 21, part 4